Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of a show, a man who owes his entire career to cocaine, It's TV's Tim Stack. Woo-hoo! Yay, me, cocaine, yay! Welcome to show uh, 4,000. This is our fourth. No, I'm just kidding. I don't I think it's fourth. No. We've done a few now. We're into our 20s. We're well into our 20s, maybe into our 30s. Uh, anyway, welcome to the show. It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. I'll quickly tell my how, how I got started because I'm going to talk to my guest how he got started. Uh, and he might remember some of this, although this was just before I met him. Anyway, so it's 1979 and I moved to Los Angeles and I did not know a soul. The only person I knew was a guy who was a low-level cocaine dealer. That's the only person I knew because I'd worked in this bar in East Hampton, and he used to hang out there. I think he did some business there, and he's the only person I knew. So I called him, and one of the things, there was a whole thing that happened with Robert Downey Sr. at William Morris, but, but the part of the story I want to tell is that how it got me started in my career. And so what happened was I was wor- I had a, a bartending job at the Troubadour, and which was an okay job. And um, I'm reading in the LA Weekly about this place called the Groundlings. And the Groundlings sounds perfect for me. It's sort of like Second City, but a little like big costumes. And, and they're doing this mystery spoof called Chick Hazard. And I think... Wow, this sounds really, really good for me. So back then, there was no online tickets or anything. So I literally went and bought a ticket at the Groundling Theater. I went and paid $10 or whatever it was, $6. I have no idea. For a ticket for that Saturday night. Well, then my friend, the cocaine dealer, calls and says, hey, we got a party to go to on Saturday night. Do you want to go? I said, yeah, I'd really like to, but um, I just bought a ticket for the Groundlings. He said, well, come afterwards. So, okay, so we got a plan. So I go to see the Groundlings, and I always say the Groundlings for me, and I know other people have said this, was like a religious experience for me. It was just, I just came alive, and I I had to do this. And I know Stu's wife, who we'll talk about later, uh, Hill had the same experience. Like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun, and, and people come and pay to see you do this. It was really life-changing. And the Groundlings show was Phil Hartman, as Chick Hazard, Paul Rubens as Pee Wee Herman, uh, Cassandra Peterson, who went on to become Elvira, Edie McClurg, who was the secretary in Ferris Bueller, and all these crazy, talented people. So I see this show, I'm walking out, I'm just dazed, and I drive to the party. Well, I see my friend, the low-level Coke dealer, hey, how you doing? Good, I'm busy. He's, he, he's working that night. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but who shows up to the party? But Phil Hartman, it's just, I, I, I felt compelled. I said, oh my God, I just saw the show at the Groundlings. It's unbelievable. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you get into the Groundlings? How does that happen? And back in those days, and, and my guest still will know this name, back in those days, a lot of us, the, the anal ones, would carry little address books, like little tiny address books, because you didn't want to miss anything, and maybe even carried a pen because that's how you kept track of things. And he said, you know, uh, I, don't, I think there might be a class starting next week here. I'll call this guy tomorrow, who was Tom Maxwell, who's my guest, who knows, and 
and you call him too, and here's the number. Now, if, if Phil didn't have that address book, this might never have happened, but he had the address book. He ended up calling Tom Maxwell, somehow he remembered. I think he liked my friend, who the low-level coke deal. <laughs> I think those two got along, put it that way. And, uh, uh, and so I call Tom Maxwell on a Sunday, and Tom Maxwell, who I'll do an impression of, who Stu knows, had a really, he sounded like he was from Mayberry on, you know, and he said, well, we got a class starting tomorrow, Monday, bring cash. That's all he said. And I was in the, back then, some cash got you in the groundlings. Now it's a lifetime to get into the groundlings. But uh, that's how I found the groundlings was through Phil Hartman and a dress book and cocaine. So that's my how I got started story. Let's have a little intro. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg present a Don Bluth film, The Land Before Time. Writer producer known for The Land Before Time, which we just heard, Where the Boys Are, Amazing Stories, Parent Trap 2, and uh, he's got an Alan Carr story I want to talk about. In the Army Now with Polly Shore, Going to the Mat, where my daughter Murphy Stack was in. I completely forgot that you wrote that. That's crazy. Two books, Raft and The One Cigarette, both are out there on barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. And he ran the, the film and TV department at UC Riverside. Uh, just a really super talented person and a great old friend. Give it up for Mr. Stu Krieger. Yay. The crowd loves you if you heard that applause. <laughs> Happy to know that. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, you know, I, I look back. One of the things I think we can both say now is like, wow, we've had long careers and different careers. And I want to get to all of that with you. But first off, go back, because I talked about how I got started. How, how did you get started? I know some of it involves the Herald Examiner, which I want to talk about later. But just tell us generally, you're from Rochester, and somehow you end up in Hollywood with a great career. Yeah, and one of the things I always say, especially since I've become an educator, is that I was a bit of a weirdo and that I, as you mentioned, grew up in Rochester, New York. And really, really early on said to my family, I belong in Hollywood. I should be. First, I thought I was going to be an actor because, as you remember, I had big flaming red hair. Oh, yeah. You like, looked like the guy on Room 222. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I used to take pictures out of the family album and send them literally in an envelope that said Walt Disney, Hollywood, California. And I would write on the back, look, I'm an adorable redhead. You should put me in a movie, preferably with Haley Mills. That's uh, funny because we want to talk about that too. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. And oddly enough, Walt never wrote back. Uh, but we did a family vacation here when I was 12. And at the end of two weeks in Los Angeles, I said, I'm just telling you people, as soon as I'm old enough to do what I want to do, this is where I belong. Right. And I Red should mention, let me, let me say this, is that yeah. Stu has two brothers who couldn't be more different from him. One is like a total jock who got into the sports business and has a son playing pro baseball. The other one lives off the land. All I know is he lives in a house in Rochester without a furnace. Like he they actually finally have moved into a house that does, but you uh, are right. The entire time they were raising their children, absolutely 100% true. Yeah, it's like Little House on the Prairie, but in Rochester, they're burning <laughs> wood to stay warm. And so that is not, yep. suffice it to say, that is not you. Right. So that was, you know, and I was the middle kid. Yeah. And, you know, I have always said we can get to that when we get to the Haley part of it, that 
having a crush on Haley Mills when I was a kid was the confirmation of my heterosexuality because being in the middle of two jocks, it was always like, you're gay, you write, you draw, you do this, you do that. And it was like, well, I don't think so because I look at Haley and get really excited in a yes. way that probably not, but I'm good. So anyway. Did you ever tell her that? We'll get to Haley Mills. I did. I actually oh, did. Oh boy. But- that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, made good on my promise, graduated college back east and immediately worked the summer to earn enough money to move across country and came here when I was 21. Right. So and this we'll, Halloween, I will celebrate my 50th anniversary in Los Angeles. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. I mean, yeah. I'm in the 40 years and it's just crazy when you think about it, it went quickly, but now it's sort of like, oh my God, that's literally a lifetime yeah. that you've been, we've been doing this. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so what was your first job? Like when you came out, did you just get a job job? No, as you mentioned, you know, I arrived, I had no, I always say it, there wasn't like an uncle at the studio, look up this guy or that guy. There was nothing. Nothing. So I just blanketed the town with anything I could possibly even think remotely tangentially re- you know, related. So I applied to be a page at NBC, a tour guide at Universal, a critter at Disneyland, radio stations, TV stations. And the first hit I got was from the Herald Examiner. And it was in its dying days. So anybody that was a real journalist worked at the LA Times. I love the Herald Examiner, though. I love that paper because it was the it was the underdog. But it was just, there was something about it. And I think Lou Grant was on at the time. And (laughs) and it just sort of reeked of the underdog so i liked it yeah and it really literally when i was there it was only kids my age and old rummies that were on hearse contracts that were lifetime and there was nobody in between and that that was who the people were and my favorite day as a copy boy was i went to each time a new edition would roll off the presses we had to get it and bring it into the city editors to look over before the next edition and it was the day onassis died and i go and grab it off the press line and the headline was shipping magnet m-a-g-n-e-t onassis dies <laughs> and i went up to the desk and i said hey you guys i don't think this is the word you meant yeah <laughs> put it out anyway kid shut up kid <laughs> yeah so it was kind of like that was james bacon still there when you were there 100 percent. oh man that's old hollywood there that is old school yeah and that was part of the you know the next jump start to my career was i was hired as a copy boy but I would hang around the entertainment department as much as I possibly could, just asking them questions, bugging them. And finally, they started letting me go out and do movie reviews and movie really? star interviews. And every, every time that I did that, I got to interview Sally Struthers when she was on All in the Family, Suzanne Plachette when she was on the Newhart Show. Yeah. And at the end of every interview, I would say, hey, do you have 10 minutes? Because what I really want to do is, and most people were incredibly generous with their time and kind of Pretty quickly, the message I got was, you can't do anything till you get an agent. That's where your energy should be. Start sending scripts out. Start trying to find somebody to represent you because most places won't read from unsolicited materials. So. Right. And so what were you writing at the time? Were you writing screenplays? Yeah. And yeah. were But they weren't kid-oriented. They were not kids. No. They, but it's funny because the first two or three things that I did that actually got picked up and made were all who I was. You know, I was 20 at the Herald 23, 24 years old, and I was writing these earnest coming of age, trying to find myself. Right. You know, those kinds of young people entering the world stories. Right. And so you eventually found an agent who I think you were with for a long time, right? Uh, no, my very, very first agent, you're talking about Dan Ostrom, yes. but we'll get to it in a moment. 
But my very first agent was just one. At the time, the Writers Guild put out a list of agencies, and then there was a subheading of these people will read from unproduced writers. And it was an agency on Sunset Boulevard. It was two people. They were actually partner, uh, romantic partners, two guys. And my favorite thing was one of their like 95-year-old mothers was the receptionist. So it was the two of them and their 100-year-old that's and, a sh- and that's was, a show right there. Yeah, it was, and it was the Dale Garrick Agency, and you would call and see him and say Garrick Agency, and I would say, "Hi, it's Stu Krieger." No, Stu's not here. And I would say, <laughs> "No, I'm Stu." I call you know, and it was like, it was, it was a sitcom every time you tried to call the office. And so, did they get some stuff out for you, and and got something? Was something sold through them? Yeah. So the first thing that happened was. They, they had a spec script and they were sending it out and it was uh, a low budget producer looking for somebody to write a teen coming of age movie for him. And that was Mike McFarland. And that ended up being my very first movie, Goodbye Franklin High, which oh. he also produced Satan's Cheerleaders, which is where Hillary and I met. Oh, my God. I did not know that. Or I did and forgot it. And yeah. that's where you met your wife, Hillary. That's so funny. Yep. Oh, Satan's cheerleaders, and which I know you have that poster somewhere in your house. I can't remember where, but I know. Not only do we have that, I have the original crew T-shirt with the logo on it still. Satan's and, cheerleaders. It's and, just and one it, of those movies. Like I may have seen in a drive-in. I don't know. The back yeah. when they made movies like that. Well, and the worst part about you know movies never die is now that I've been a professor, every couple of years somebody will come in and go, "Dude, look what I found!" <laughs> and they've got both Satan's Chillers and Goodbye Franklin High on their laptop or their iPad, showing me like, "Yeah, yeah, I know." But to think Goodbye Franklin High, you could say like, "Oh, it's a you know, it's what it is." But Satan's Cheerleaders tells you right off the bat what it is. There's no, there's no uh, inference there. It's Satan's Cheerleaders. No. Hillary has always described it as a porno movie with no sex. <laughs> then what's the point? Um, <laughs> so uh, we are, oh my gosh, I knew this was going to happen. There's so much to talk about, but that's good. So I, I do want to talk about, we'll, we'll open up and we'll pick it up on the, on the other side of this break too, is Land Before Time. Because... You had a bunch of, of successes. I mean, you know, you wrote a Pauly Shore movie that got made. That was a big, you know, now he's sort of a judd like Pauly Shore. But at the time, that was a huge deal. You're in the Army now, and your buddy directed it, right, Dan Petrie? Yep. Um, and then you stumble into Land Before Time, which, if there's one thing, I think that's safe to say, the thing most connected to your movie career. Would that be safe? Absolutely. And so how did that happen? And how did you get to write for kids all of a sudden? Uh, Two parts to that question, which is, first of all, one of the things that I think is a really, really wonderful piece of advice to anybody who wants to do this for a living is everything we're about to talk about happened because the first couple of movies, as I mentioned, that I did were all young adult coming of age and Writers get typecast as quickly as actors do. And so those were the kinds of jobs I was going out for. And I had this like, no, I am actually more than that. And I want to be more than that. So I took three months off. I wrote a script called Kinfolk, which was the most autobiographical thing I ever wrote. Uh, A great script and got you a lot of work. Yes. So the thing about that that was so pivotal was... It was at a time, now there's the blacklist, and the equivalent at the time was American Film Magazine did the 10 best unproduced scripts in Hollywood, 
and Ken Folk ended up on that right. list. This is coming back so, to me now. Yeah. Okay. So Josh Brand and John Falsey read that script. They had been hired to be the producers of Amazing Stories, Spielberg's foray into television. Right. And based on that script, they hired me to write an episode of Amazing Stories. And when Stephen read that, well, he also had read Ken Folk, but then when he read the episode of Amazing Stories, he gave me three more to write and then brought me on as part of the second season story editing panel for Amazing Stories. And then that led to Land Before Time. Okay, good. Okay, so we're caught up there. We're going to take our first break. I'm talking to Stu Krieger. He's a writer, producer, educator, now a novelist. You can follow him at Stu Krieger on Instagram. But he's got two books out on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. His new one is called The Raft. His previous one is called The One Cigarette, which I really, really love because it's around the time of the JFK assassination, and I love that stuff. I can't help it. Um, anyway, we're talking to him. We're going to take our break now. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freebie, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. Five friends lost and alone. Took an incredible journey. You want to go with me? Through a land of wonder and a land of danger. I hope he doesn't eat any of you. Okay, another clip from The Land Before Time. So I'm talking to Stu Krieger. Uh, he's a writer, producer, novelist, everything. I mean, just <laughs> an incredible, uh, as you said, 50 years, which is amazing. Um, so let's go back to that because one of the questions I, I really wanted to talk to you about was now you – and I remember Kinfolk. I completely forgot about it. The other script I loved of yours was it called Something in Maine. It was uh, where you had all the old TV stars in a kind of a murder trial, right? Yes. Uh, Maple and Elm. Maple and Elm. And, and that was a really hot script for a while that never got made that should have gotten made. Yep. Uh, that, that was a, my first true heartbreak in show business because Amy Heckerling was attached to direct. Yes. Stuart Kornfeld was attached to produce. Um, and ultimately, we'll leave some names out of it, but ultimately ended up blowing up because of a feud between the head of the studio and the executive producer on it. And their feud blew it up. It had nothing to do with the project. It had nothing to do with the quality of anything. Doesn't and that matter. was Doesn't kind matter. of my first big. That's all it takes. It's just yep. something like that. Or a new executive who just comes in and wipes yep. out everything. Ugh, that was such a great idea. Um, so let's go back to Lambo Four Time. And, and so you've suddenly found, and I loved Amazing Stories. I think those are still out there. I did one as an actor, the one that Burt Reynolds directed. Hmm. which was really cool. And Dom DeLuise and Lonnie Anderson were in. 
That was really cool to work with Burt Reynolds. So that leads me to my next question, which was you suddenly find yourself working with Steven Spielberg. Was that, I guess it had to be intimidating, but was it also fun? Yeah. Uh, There's actually a great story about the first time we actually met, which was, as I mentioned, they decided for the second season there, rather than have a single story editor, they were going to put together a story panel to go over all the scripts and review them and decide who was going to rewrite what. Right. So first thing was I got a summons from Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy, who were running Amblin, and they said, we're going to be at MGM. Come meet us here. We have something we want to talk to you about. So I didn't know what I was walking into. First of all, I go to meet them and they are on the soundstage where John Williams is conducting the LA Philharmonic recording the score of The Color Purple. So I got to sit there for a while and watch all that happen. That's fine. And then I had lunch with Frank and Kathy and they said, for the second season of Amazing Stories, we're putting together a panel and it's Jay Cox from Time Magazine, Menno Magus who wrote The Color Purple, Richard Matheson who worked on the sure. original Twilight Zone all the way through, uh, Bob Zemeckis, Bob Gale, couple other names, and we'd like you to be a part of it. Wow. And I said, are you sure? Because like <laughs> these people you just mentioned, and like, you know, I'm not sure how this lines up. And they said, no, 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 yeah, but, but Stephen loves what you've been doing so far. So I still have not met him in person. We have the first day of this story panel. It's at Amblin in their beautiful conference room. Everybody files in and sits down. Zemeckis and Gail are there. Everybody's talking to each other. I'm sitting by myself because I don't know any of these right. people yet, and except Frank and Kathy. Everybody's seated, and Stephen comes in, and he sits at the head of the table. But let me interrupt for one second. You're not friends with any of these people. I had not met most of them before right, that. Right, I just, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. I, so I'm sitting, sitting at this big, intimidating conference table in the Amblin conference room. Stephen comes in, he sits at the head of the table. He's got a stack of scripts in front of him, and he just starts talking. And I'm thinking, Are you introduced to him? No, no. This, this uh, is the it. So I'm thinking at some point he's going to look up and go, I'm sorry, who the F are, are you? Yeah, totally. And I can feel my face is getting red. And my heart's kind of pounding. And he just starts talking scripts and he's going, you know, this one's in fairly good shape, but it needs a polish. Zemeckis, I think this is your wheelhouse. You take this. And he's like throwing scripts down the table. And right. the longer it's going, the more I can feel my pits getting wet and the whole thing's happening. And then like, I think easily 45 minutes or an hour in, he's looking at a script and he goes, to me, this seems like a perfect Stu Krieger script. And he looks up and he goes, you want to take a crack at it? And I'm like, really? No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, he just like filed it down the table. I would have fainted. Yeah. Finally, we took a lunch break and I could go over and say, Stephen, you know, I know we haven't properly met in person. Thank you so much for including me. But that was one of the hairiest hours of my entire life. Oh, my gosh. That's such up. a great story. <laughs> because getting introduced, it's not like, again, I, and I think I've told the story before where I, I was in the movie Blind Date and nobody would introduce me to Bruce Willis and yeah. Bruce Willis or Kim Bessinger didn't introduce themselves to me. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bruce Willis is pounding me. The part of the part was he's covering me with chopped liver, but he's still not introducing himself to me. Yeah. And And this is, it's the same thing except the writer, which is. You don't jump up and say, hey, before we get started, everyone, I'm Stu Krieger. It's like, no, 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 no. You shut up and let somebody else or they introduce themselves. Exactly. A hundred percent. So that was our first formal meeting. But the, the thing, though, I'll say about that experience, like I said, that led to Land Before Time was Stephen was always the most decent, 
normal, grounded Hamish guy. Right. And the only one in those story meetings that would take him on was Zemeckis. They would go toe to toe sometimes. I can absolutely see that. Yeah. No, knowing Bob, else. not dropping names, but knowing him a little bit, yeah. I can absolutely see that. Yeah. And everybody else was a little bit more deferential, but still, he would, he would always be very open to the best idea in the room. Right. It wasn't, you know, it had to be me. And then over the years when I would run into him, or we ended up working on four projects together, but he was always, how are you? How's the family? How are the kids? What's up? I mean, he was just a really right. lovely guy to work with. George was much more intimidating. That's what I was going to say. Now you're working with Spielberg, and then all of a sudden, George Lucas walks in the room. Not that room, but you know, you know what I mean. Now you're yeah. dealing with George Lucas, too. Yeah, and he was notoriously shy and kind of socially awkward to begin with, so I had been forewarned. But then again, with the awkwardness of the way things work, is most of the time that we were doing Land Before Time, he was up at Skywalker, and so he was like Charlie from Charlie's Angels. There would be a squawk box in the middle of the table. Right. And there'd be, you know, it was Don Bluth who directed and John Pomeroy, his producer, and Frank and Kathy and Stephen and I all at the table. And then occasionally George would go, uh, I have an idea. You know, so, <laughs> so for two years, I never. You had never met him. Until the premiere. No, I finally met him at the premiere, which they did at the Natural History Museum downtown among the dinosaur exhibit. That's where they had the premiere party. Now, at that point, did you introduce yourself or were I you? I had to. Yeah, was, yeah, I was going to say you have to at that happen. point. The movie's done at this point, yeah. and you wrote it. Yeah. So, at that point, you can approach him. Yeah, and he, and he was still a little bit awkward, but it was all good. Yeah, but that's all, that's just a shyness that I'm sure he has that, you know, yeah. that's yeah. very um, contagious. So, yeah, let so me it, ask you this about, oh, go ahead, sorry, I interrupted. No, I was going to say, because it's the other part of the question you asked is, one of the things that happened when I was offered the movie is Deborah Newmeyer, who was the head of development at Amblin at the time, said to me while I was working on Amazing Stories, Stephen and I were talking the other night. We think you've become an even better writer since you've become a dad. And they've always had, he and George have had this idea for an animated dinosaur movie they want to do. Would you like to write it for them? Wow. And as I say to my students, when you get asked that question, you say yes. Yes. You yes. don't say how much am I being paid? How long do I have to write it? You say yes. Yes. Unbelievable. So let's land before time that I, I know you've had this experience and I have it a little bit being a voice on the brave little toaster, yeah. but I know that there are people whose childhoods changed because of the land before time. Like they had a religious experience and I know you've been approached and told that. Yes, it, it you know, and I'm sure you're asked to sign things or at and you know, I don't know if you ever go to those things, but I'm guessing you you know if you went to autograph shows, uh, you'd have a line because of Land Before Time. Well, here here's the best way I can equate that is I have had studiously avoided social media at all costs in any form for years and years and years. Right. Uh, and when I finished writing Raft and a publisher approached me about wanting to get involved in it, they said, we really feel like the kids who grew up on your movies are now the young adult audience for this book. But we have to have a way to reach them. Would you consider social media? And I said, because I'm a professor, I've always avoided it i don't want to get into that you friended him you didn't friend me thing and they said there's a way you can curate your career without curating your personal life so what i ended up doing was hiring two grad students that i was paying to run it for me they would say dude we need a video of you doing this or answering this question or that question and i just did what i was told right uh, 
but we put up a video very early on on TikTok about why Sarah's named Sarah when everybody else has a dinosaur name. Yeah. And I, in my snarky way, said, hey, you dumbasses, pay attention. It's C-E-R-A because she's a triceratops. It's not, you know. Yeah. Uh, in a day and a half, 2.8 million views. Oh, my God. Of everybody of like, you just blew my mind. Either the camps were either you blew my mind or everybody like, no shit, I knew that. Did yeah. You, ever, you know. So that was kind of, but that was the, you know, kind of a really measurable way for me to say 2.8 million people responded to this post about Land Before Time. In a short amount of time. Yeah. That's so crazy. That is so great. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take our second break. I'm talking to Stu, a writer, Stu Krieger. Uh, he's got two books out that I want to promote. One is his new book, The Raft, which we're going to talk about on the other side of this. His previous book, The One Cigarette, they're both available on Amazon. Uh, but written so many great things that you can still watch. They're all out there. And uh, we'll take a break. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. United States entered World War I on April 6, 1917. A blindfolded President Woodrow Wilson picked the first draft number, and before it was over, two million Yanks would cross the Atlantic to fight in France against Kaiser Wilhelm's Germany. That was the only Hearst newsreel film I could find on YouTube, so I put it in. Plus, I love those things. They always remind me of, uh, of John Lovitz's voice, a lot from The Brave Little Toaster. Um, so let's go. I want to do a couple things in this, in this uh, segment. I do want to talk about Haley Mills because it had to been, you just said you had a boyhood crush on this girl from the parent trap. Was it from the parent trap or, or subsequent stuff or everything? No. I had seen Pollyanna and, you know, yeah. that was fine. But parent trap was the one that was really like, oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> so then, I was the same way with Anne Margaret. Like, yeah. I remember watching Bye Bye Bird and it suddenly made sense to me like, what was going on in my brain and what was going on below my waist? Like yeah. those two. Oh, I get it now. There's some. Oh, I see now. The Ed Margaret moment was when she was changing into her sweater and jeans. That and for so, whatever reason, maybe because my parents left the room during the credits. It's when <laughs> she, it's when she sang Bye Bye Verdi at the end. With the fan blowing with the yes, hair. Yes, with that blue own. screen behind it. It's just like, yeah, what is totally. going on here? Something <laughs> crazy is happening. Um, so, uh, but <laughs> with Haley Mills. But then you go on and you got to write The Parent Trap 2 and you become really, really, like legitimately really good friends with yes. her. That's got to be, and that's an, uh, an emotional accomplishment, certainly, as no, well as it, professional. It still to this day does not make sense to me. And her email is Haley Mills with numbers and stuff at right. Gmail. And I, if I wake up in the morning and open my phone and there's an email that says Haley Mills, it's like, what? 
Yes. And, and you know, at this point, l- the last time we were together last January, when she was here to get her honorary Oscar and promote her autobiography, we're having brunch and it's she and my my wife and I and she and her boyfriend, longtime boyfriend, and the four of us are just having breakfast. And at some point I'm like, yeah, but I'm sitting there. Yeah. I mean, there was a time in my life where my bedroom wall was papered with pictures of this woman. And now I'm sitting here with my friend having breakfast. And it's like. Did she, uh, and we'll get, we'll, we'll move on because I want to talk about the books, <laughs> but I am curious because yeah. one of my childhood freakouts where I was so scared was watching her father in Great Expectations. Like it scared me. Be, I don't know why my father took me to that movie, but he took me <laughs> to that movie. It was playing at some weird art house, and it really scared me. Did she talk much about her family because her sister's an actress and her dad yeah. is John Mills? And Yeah, and, and I mean, what's the dearest thing in the world, which you will relate to more than anybody, she and her sister, Juliet, are like Jano and Chrissy. Right. Super Juliet close. actually lives in Ohio, but they are in touch every minute. She comes over to spend time with her. They've toured all of England and Australia doing plays together. And Juliet has been married a year longer than I have, so more than 40 years to Maxwell Caulfield. Yes, who was on Southern the Beach, and all I did was bug him questions about, about his father-in-law. But he was, <laughs> he was very nice. Yeah, I know. He's a lovely guy. But they, the three of them have done plays together, so they're an incredibly tight family. And John lived into his mid-90s and was still doing a one-man show in his 90s, and she was always promoting that. And, yeah, they're just a phenomenally close and dear family. Wow. That's so great. Um, so let's talk about – well, actually, let's – tell me – I want to do one more story about – this is about yeah. meeting celebrities because, again, it goes back to the beginning of your career. And now, as a writer, and especially back then, now you do Zooms, but you would go to – producers houses directors houses actors houses i remember we went to a reading of a script at goldie hahn's house that was cool but you went to alan carr's house for where the boys are so just tell that story i just love that story first of all it's alan carr's house yeah so i i don't know how much context we need for your audience in terms of who alan carr was uh, but he was a phenomenally flamboyant producer. He produced Grease. He had the home that Brett Ratner actually bought from. I mean, I think there's owners in between, but it right. was a hilltop estate that had its own name and its own napkins. And if you would go for a meeting at Alan's house, there was always houseboys that were kind of like the Hank Azaria character. This in the is so age. fantastic. <laughs> and also, anytime you go to a house that has a name. It's like, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm moving up here. <laughs> and, and they would come out, you know, I, I, you want anything to drink? Yeah, I'll take a Coke. And they would come out with a silver tray with the dome with your right. plastic Coke on it and stuff like that. So at this point, 1984, I well, it was even earlier because they were writing the script. So probably 82. So, you know, I had not been in L.A. all that long. And I'm still the Rochester boy at heart. And Alan was also renowned for he wore caftans. Yes, this is but what I love. He, he was a short, portly fella. <laughs> and and I was me too before I knew I was and and again <laughs> I was such a Rochester boy it took me days to even realize what happened but anyway I'm at a meeting and we're talking story and he's sitting across from me in his caftan and suddenly the caftan gets hiked and the legs get spread no underwear involved <laughs> and I'm like I, I don't know where my eyes go I don't know what my eyes do and I, I I don't know what's happening right now, but I'm just, and I'm trying to keep talking about this. So anyway, right. I see it in the next scene. I think we should. Right. And then it was like, check, please. You know, 
And I left and, and it was just to me at that point, it was kind of funny. It was yeah. just like, I can't believe that just happened, but I didn't feel incredibly violated or traumatized. It was just like, damn, did that really just happen? Yeah. You got he tooed. I don't know if that's an expression, but it should be. It should be. You got he tooed. <laughs> so, so you have this incredible career. And I don't want to go on too long about teaching and because and, I've gotten into some teaching and it's it's really fun. I do want to talk about the novels because yeah. that's a whole other like teaching is it's an art form. It's kind of an art form to itself, you know, and it's really important to do it for a lot of reasons, um, as well as I think it makes you a better writer. Would you agree with that? Teaching? 100%. So, but yeah. then you take the leap and you write your first novel. So, how did that happen? Like, what yeah. what possessed you? I will tell you exactly because it was a very clean path. Which was the first year and a half that I was because I taught for twenty years, one class a year at the Peter Stark Producing Program at USC. Uh -huh. I was really loving that. I wanted to teach more. I met with a friend who was teaching. He told me to go to the Chronicle of Higher Education website. I did. A posting for the position at UC Riverside popped up looking for somebody with film experience and writing, I mean, and, and teaching experience. And you had a master's. Didn't you have a master's? I did not. Oh, you did not? Okay. I did not. And that was part of the controversy of my hiring. There was one member of the faculty at UCR that was very against my hiring because I did not have a master's. They, they and, like people in the club. Yeah. And everybody else in the faculty said he's got 30 years teaching what we're hiring him to, I mean, practically practicing what we're hiring them to teach right that's going to be invaluable to our students the, the one naysayer got overridden and i he sends past so this story doesn't have as much value but i was told when i was up for tenure at that meeting he said you all know i was against this hire and i think it's one of the smartest things we did oh, okay. good for him and somebody else on the faculty told me that after the fact which was very lovely um but anyway so when i got that job that was a full-time tenure track position and the first year and a half I was doing it, I was also the head writer and story editor on Toot and Puddle, an animated show for Nickelodeon. So doing that meant I was now working 90 hours a week doing the show and teaching full time. Oh it was like, gosh. this is not what I signed on for. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the universe talking to you. And my agent at Paradigm at the time called me partway through and he said, I'm making a segue into managing. Do you want me to introduce you to other agents here? And I said, you know what? No, this is the perfect time for me to go been there, done that. Right. I want to focus on teaching. I'm a writer. I will always write. But if I write a book, I can do it when I can do it. I can do it over summer. I, if it takes seven years to finish, who cares? It's not how I'm making my living. And, and also at this point, I don't know that the show you were referring to, but I know you had been at Disney for a long time under contract. And, you know, it's not the greatest place to work. So uh, it's just not, you know, anybody will tell you that. And is, there a reason that is there a reason they call it Mauschwitz? Yeah. And and so that had to be adding, that had to be another factor too, for you to say, okay, we're done. Now we're done. Uh, the we're done there was I had at that point done 12 Disney Channel original movies for them. I had a project in development with Raven Simone who had come to me with it. We took it to them. They bought it in the room. At some point, they decided to put it in turnaround, but did not want to tell either of us. And I found out so circuitously backdoored. And it was like, you guys, we made 12 movies together and you and don't have what the you decency do. to call me up and tell me. You know, so it was like, 
Yeah. Peace out. It's That's sort good. of how they are. That's everything. That, and then they just kind of go like, eh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but we really like yeah. you. You know, it's yeah. Just, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So those things all combined were like, like I said, I'm a writer. I will always write the book. I have control over the book. It doesn't have a deadline. The book doesn't have a page thing. So, you know, I kind of tossed this off. But in fact, that one cigarette was seven years in the making. Um, part of it was there was a lot of research involved. The other part was in the middle of it. I was department chair for three years and I had no time to do anything. And then, you know, finished it when I finished it and right. got a publisher and got it done. So, And so tell everybody what that book is about, because I, I, I really loved it. But again, I'm partial because it's JFK adjacent. <laughs> so, yeah. So one thing that always intrigued me is I, I was always interested in the choices we make at pivotal moments in our lives and the path we take and what's directing us where. So the premise of it was it's four families in four different places around the world who their lives finally intersect in the final chapter, but all the way through, you don't know how or why. But the jumping off point is the idea that our hero, Ed Callahan, is working at the Texas Book Depository on November 22nd, 1963, and ends up preventing Oswald from killing Kennedy. And then it's the ripple of because that didn't happen. What else didn't happen? Right. And why are these four characters, the pivotal people that have made those turns in history that finally intersect together in 2008? Yeah. And, and ultimately they're really wonderful characters and it's a great story. And, uh, you know, anyway, but, but you've got a new book and it's very different. Very so, different. So tell us about that. All right. For the, in the viewing audience, it is wrapped. <laughs> very good. Um, and what Raft is... Hold that up again. Let me see that. That's really cool. Who did the cover? Uh, the This publishing company that I've worked with, Pipevine Press, has been amazing. So it was an internal artist that did the cover design. The only thing that I said to them is I kind of have a Roy Lichtenstein vision. Yeah. A pop arty kind of thing. And this is what they came back with. And after I tell this part of the story, I'll hold it up one more time because... What Raft is, it's the story of children's book author Clark Whitaker, who is turning 50, having a midlife crisis. His son is leaving for college. His father-in-law just died. He's having this moment of, is everything now forward going to be about loss? I'm not ready for that. He's having some difficulties in his career. He and his wife get in a tremendous fight. He goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning, and he's a penguin. Right. <laughs> no reason, no magic, no Zoltar machine. He just... How, kind of how I sold it to the publisher was some men leave their wives for a younger woman, some buy a sports, sports car, some take up my, mountain biking. Clark Whitaker became a penguin. Shit happens, deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of the premise of the book. That's great. Okay, so both those books, you can buy them both on, uh, on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, again, I'm talking to Stu Krieger. You can look at him at, uh, on Instagram at Stu Krieger. And TikTok, too? Is there some TikTok yeah. action? Yeah. Going yeah, on, that. especially if you're a land before time freak, and I know yeah. you're out there listening. Uh, we're going to talk some more about uh, Stu's career when we come back. I want to talk about his family because that's how we met, uh, and we'll do that on the other side of this break. You are li oh, plug uh, Sprung on uh, Amazon Freebie. I should always do that. The show I worked on that's uh, on hold right now because of our writers' strike. That's a whole other discussion this is actually the first strike i'm behind i don't know how you feel but this is the first one where i'm just like yeah no this we need a recalibration here of this whole Absolutely, system 100 percent. yeah okay we're taking a break we'll be right back you're listening to it's radio with tv's tim stack 
Hey, it's Tim Stack, and having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends, and you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes, my cycle humps. I'm ready to race to you. These days are on. I think we know uh, what that song is. Uh, <laughs> so, Stu has been, how long have you been married now? 42 years in July. Wow, unbelievable. So, he's got a wonderful wife, uh, Hill Krieger, who's one of my wife's best friends. But we're also all friends. But those two <laughs> have a whole other unique bond together. And really just, it's so fun watching the two of them. And then they met at the Groundlings. Like, my career got started. They were in class together. Uh, Stu's wife, Hill, did very well and got up to almost getting in the Groundlings. That's a, that's a, not a good story. I did vote for her. Uh, <laughs> make that clear. And then um, uh, a third guy, uh, well, Randy Bennett and Craig Strong. With Craig Strong is another guy. They're now married, but Craig Strong was in that class, and Hill and my wife kept trying to set him up with women, and it turns out he ended up leaving with the instructor, the male instructor, <laughs> Randy. So, but but uh, Hill, I just love this because Hill was one. Uh, if you look at the show Happy Days, and she went by Hillary Horan then her maiden name. But there was all this group that hung out at the coffee shop, whatever it was called. Arnold's. Arnold's. There were all these kids, and all the girls, when the Fonz would come in, the girls would go crazy. And Hillary was one of those girls, right? Yep. And so, but the thing that I love about it is that, first of all, she's got great stories, but that that Happy Days family, starting with Gary Marshall, they are like a family. Like, they... If she runs into Anson, you know, Ron Howard somewhere, Anson, they pick it up like an old high school friend. Am I right? 100%. Yeah. It's really, really fun to watch. And I just, I love looking at it. But if I, there have been times when I've met, you know, Henry Winkler and I'll say, hey, you know, he's a friend of mine. He knows Hillary. And he'll just like, he know he not just knows her, he knows about your kids and he knows everything. It's really interesting. And the other interest, I'm talking way too much now, but right next door was Laverne and Shirley, and it was a completely different atmosphere. <laughs> yep. It's so funny. And we became <laughs> friends with Cindy Williams, and I got to know Penny a little bit. Like, there's no reason why those two shouldn't have been friends. And I guess they were at the end, but, you know, there was just nothing but, but fighting and bickering on yep. that show. Meanwhile, next door on Happy Days, it was a love fest. 100%. Yeah. So um, so that's where we met. And then you said, you, I forgot about Satan's cheerleaders. <laughs> um, but but Hill became, right up until his death, was really tight with Gary Marshall. Like She, she was in the hospital room the day he died. And, yeah. and that was a, an invitation-only situation where the family was calling people that they knew he would want to say goodbye to. And it happened that she and Laurie Metcalf were in the room together, and he died later that day. It's it's just crazy. And and I do want to talk about that guy for a second, because yeah. I, I don't think 
I mean, I think I could say this safely. I don't know that there was ever a better guy to come through Hollywood, like to be that successful and that generous about everything. It it was yeah. really amazing to watch. Yeah, and 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 it was genuine. I mean, he was so Gary until the day he died, and the fact that he came down to Riverside and did a class for me, and right. He, I think you know this. That he he couldn't do left turns. Yeah. So whatever you know, wherever he went, you had to build in the extra hours. So when I invited him, I said, "Gare, Hill will come. She'll pick you up. She'll drive you to Riverside. We'll have dinner together. She'll bring you home, so you don't have to worry about the left turns." Right. And that's that's exactly what ended up happening. She she drove him down. But think about that, everybody. This is one of the most successful TV writer directors in the history of Hollywood, and he couldn't make a left turn in a car. Like he would have to keep making rights until he got there. It's so funny. Yep. But that guy, I mean, he really and 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 part of the reason why I teach. This is going to sound very priestly of me, but I think it's the same with you. Is that it's important to share what you've learned with younger people so the industry can carry on. And yeah. he was the first person I thought to myself, I heard him talking about that. He was not a professor, but he made a point of doing love like coming to your class. That was important for him to yeah. do that. Yeah. And, and the thing about, you know, how he gave to the next generation, both Ron and Henry have done my class as well. Uh, and part of that was, again, this is what Gary taught us. I mean, they both referenced it when they came to class about, you know, how you give back, how you mentor, how you make sure the next generation is being cared for. And both Ron and Henry gave Gary credit for teaching them that. Yeah, it's really, and I always tell people to, you know, if you want to read a show business book is to read Gary Marshall's book because it's just, yeah. and you know, it, it was, it's, it's not all roses with him. I mean, there were ups yeah. and downs and then a, a, you know, a big down at the end where the money's gone, but he just kept coming back. And, and part of that, I think his success after he had a bad business manager was people just loved him. I mean, people yeah. wanted to make sure that guy got resurrected because he was so talented and had been so generous. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were at his memorial service and there was never you you couldn't possibly find a better testimonial to the life lived in terms of from the USC marching band to right. Beth Midler singing the wind beneath my wings to Julia Roberts and Richard Gere and Julie Andrews all te you know speaking at the service it was just everybody was there and, yeah. and again that was an invitation only event that 2000 people were at <laughs> there you go I was yeah. 2001 I was not uh... <laughs> Um, so, and, and, and while we're on the topic of family, uh, we both have, uh, two children and one, uh, made the smart business of smart choice of not going into show business <laughs> and the other one did, but tell us about your son, Gus, because, uh, he's in the throes of show business. And I, I think he's chosen an interesting and different path. So talk about him a little bit. Yeah. The thing that I have said many times, and this is no false modesty involved is I honestly think Gus is a more talented writer than I am. He's also a director, which I never was and never aspired to be. Uh, he has done some acting, but he has been kind of the way his career has panned out. He's directed films. He's got films in development. He's got novels. He's he's incredibly prolific and talented, but he's also been bumped back and forth a couple of times by, you know, some momentum and COVID hits and then momentum again and the writer's strike hits and and it's trying to learn how to navigate those 
incredible roller coaster things that are such an inevitable part of the business while he has a two and a half year old daughter and a wonderful wife who's also a director and you know just trying to navigate and manage all this part of what's difficult as a parent is i really truly do think everything about the business of the business is much more difficult than when you and i were starting out it's Tim. wildly and, different and, and you know my daughter works in reality tv and she sort of well she tells me these crazy shows that they're pitching they're make no sense to me but that's the world and and you know the trials and tribulations that she has to go through it's like i, I don't know what to say because the business is just so different yeah now and how do you explain that to your child when you don't know it you you could explain it when it was the days of like yeah you got to get an agent and get your script out there as a sample like yeah who reads samples now nobody even does that yeah and and you know getting in the room is not what it used to be because of all the zoom yes. meetings and you know and i always said about my own career that i felt that again along the way i met many many people that were better writers than i was but they couldn't do the room they couldn't schmooze they couldn't you know be personable and and i say to my students now what you have to realize when you're in that meeting they're not buying the idea as much as they're buying their confidence in you to execute the idea yes, absolutely and if, and if you can't be comfortable in the room to make them comfortable that you're the person you don't have a career no matter how talented you are yeah the class i just finished uh, we didn't some of the students didn't finish their scripts on time i try to get the 10th week to keep open that everybody's got it done they can go off and work on the scripts but the 10th week is story ideas for the script for the pilot and then i try to bring in a sitcom writer and let them pitch the idea to the sitcom because and i'm always happy to do that for you if that comes up but yeah. but but because so much of it is verbalizing the the ability to verbally sell your project is yeah. more what you just said it's more important they're buying you they're not buying paper they're buying you yep 100 percent. so uh which I am going to now counterplug how much Hillary and I adored Sprung. We had so much fun watching it. And <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I am, I'm happy to hear we are potentially waiting to find out about second season. Or? I would have to say, so, you know, the writers, they were negotiating a deal. I shouldn't say this, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the writer strike has put a hold on everything. Yeah. I would have, to, they're finding success now. That channel jury duty is like a, I'm putting it in quotes, a hit, whatever that means now. Yep. You know, Happy Days used to be watched by 200 million people. Now if yeah. you get 2,000, you're a hit. So yeah. um, so I think they're finding comedies are doing well for them. And we have a season two mapped out that I'm definitely not going to talk about. Um, yeah. But it's a great idea, and I, I think they'll go for it. So we'll see. But I, I would think so. But, uh, oh. Stu, thank you again for doing this. Really, really fun um we're supposed to absolutely we're supposed to meet halfway at brant's soon we'll do that uh yes please yes please delhi <laughs> please so anyway i've been talking to Stu krieger he's a writer he's a producer he's an educator at uc riverside uh are you retired from that now or are you still there no sir uh when i get off this call i will be reading the papers for week 10 for my class on wednesday there you go uh, yep. And he's got two books out, uh, The Last Cigarette and Raft. Raft is the new one. You can buy them both on Amazon.com uh, and BarnesandNoble.com. And you can check him out on Stu Greer on Instagram and TikTok. I did it there all right there. Uh, Stu, thank you again so much. And, thank you, Jim. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Always. Uh, Hope we'll see you I'll, soon. I'll see you soon. I'll see you next time.
on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.